G'day and welcome to another episode of Occupied. This episode is kind of a follow-up episode. So way back in episode 123, Carissa Dyer came on to talk about uh, finishing up her her doctoral program and her, her thesis project, which was just kicking off. And she's come back today to give us an update on how it went, what the results were, etc., uh, she's since got married since then, so it's no longer dire. It's Carissa Galano. Um, but I hope that if you haven't listened to the first one, it's probably not a bad idea to go back and, and, and check that out, just so you can see where this episode's coming from in the background for the project, etc. Um, but other than that, enjoy the follow-up uh, and let me know if you have any experience or you, if you've heard of similar projects uh, run in in your area so let me know enjoy g'day my name's brock cook and welcome to occupied in this podcast we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy we explore the people topics theories and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible if you're new here you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at occupiedpodcast.com but for now, let's roll the episode. <laughs> Welcome back, maybe? Thanks. So, so you've finished everything now. Like, yeah, yeah, and I passed my boards and boards, all I need to wicked. do is... Yep. And I, all I need to wait for is my license to come in from the state and then I'll be good to practice. Then you're off and running. Oh yeah. So yeah. last time we were speaking about your your project that you're, I think you were about to start it last time we spoke, and obviously is completed mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So yeah. how did that go? Tell me about that. Oh man, it was a lot in a short amount of time. <laughs> um, it was, it was a. Six, I think I did, chose to do 16 weeks um, just because I had so much to do. Um, and I first started out, my first week I spent at the Acute Center for Eating Disorders in Denver, Colorado, which in the United States, that is like one of the top five inpatient eating disorder facilities that patients can go. Okay. And they have OT and PT on staff, which was pretty cool. Um So I got to shadow Erica Totes, who is the OT on staff there, um, and just kind of see what she does, how she runs things. And it was really cool to see because I had never, one, ran a mental health group, like period, two, never been in that sort of setting. So it was so cool to see and just learn all the info and she's she kept saying to me like if you have any questions just let me know and I'm like I don't even know what to ask because <laughs> I'm just taking it all in just soak it all in oh yeah yeah and my husband came with me too on that trip because we both love Colorado if we were not both so close with our families um we would move out to Colorado in a heartbeat but <laughs> Because it's just, it's so gorgeous there and the mountains and the hiking, like, oh, so beautiful. I think I know a few, I think Mandy Chamberlain lives there. I think she's in Colorado. She does the... Mandy uh, Chamberlain. 
Yeah, the well, it was seniors flourish, and now it's OT flourish. Oh, that's 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 I'm how I know her name. I'm like, sure. doesn't she work with older adults? Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure she's in Colorado. She'll probably mm-hmm. yell at me if I'm wrong, but I think it's Colorado. <laughs> yeah, um, Colorado is so great. Um, so I was able to spend a week there, um, and then I did like a little stint. Cause I had this awkward gap between the end of my time in Denver. And then the time I started my, at my capstone site in Chicago. Um, and so I just spent a week to get on-site hours at my school. Cause my school counted as a secondary site. So I just spent some time there getting like assignments done that we had to get done for capstone. Um, which was really nice because then I got to re- go through like my whole literature review and redo some of that. And had I not had that time, like I would not gotten, I would not have gotten those assignments done (laughs) when they needed to get done. Because when, when I got to Linden Oaks, which was my primary capstone site, my expert mentor who was also an OT was there and he was like, okay, so how do you learn best? I'm like, honestly, by doing, he's like, all right, go run a group. Like, watch me run a group, and then you go run a group. And I was like... That's the best way. Yeah, but after day one, yeah, I was like, why not? oh, no. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> um, no, but it was so great. I mean, by the end of it. And unfortunately, there was a hiring freeze, so I won't be returning there. Yeah. Just because census was continuously low, which I guess that's how it is in the summer. Um. But since this was continuously low, so they put a hiring freeze up, which made me very sad. Um, but I'm going to be working in peds, so that's still good because I love kiddos. Um, yeah, that's, but that's, I that's ran. What American thing to say. Americans are what? the only, Americans are the only people I've ever heard call them kiddos. Kiddos. Yeah. Yeah. So, I've I only ever you. heard like my American friends <laughs> call them kiddos. No, I've never yeah. heard anyone like here or anywhere else, like any other country, call them kiddos. I mean, I would trust you because you've talked to so many people <laughs> like around the world, so I trust you. But yeah, that doesn't surprise me that we're the only ones that call them kiddos. <laughs> um, no, but um, I was running probably like three to four groups a week at that, um, probably towards week three. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I created like, God, I think 32 to 34 group protocols, Jeez. like outlines, um, targeting acceptance and commitment therapy and values, polyvagal theory, um, body centered groups for my patients. Um, who had eating disorders. So it was really cool to see those shift and develop and grow and just myself being pushed yeah, as awesome. a student and practitioner. So, yeah. So they, I'm assuming they ran groups before, like, you were there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. How they had already established, like... If you, if you 34 new ones... What were they running before? Um, so the groups that I created, and that was like a deliverable for my project. Mm. Um, Cause I just had so many ideas that 
I was like, well, I'm just going to create as many as I feel like it. And then, you know, whichever ones I don't like or feel like I need to change after I run it, then I'll do that. Mm -hmm. But because there were some, I probably had like 37 once I created all of them, but then there were a few because I ended up with like 32 to 34 that I threw out because I was like, I don't really like these and how they land with patients. And, and I was able to have the chance to run the groups more, at least twice um, with different groups of patients yep. that came in through like the waves. Um, yeah, but there were a few that I was just like, I don't really feel like this is landing. So toss those. Um, and then I was able to take five of the groups that focused on acceptance and commitment therapy and body centered therapy. Um, and I was able to publish them on like a hospital, the Linden Oaks, like we, they, we called it group express. Um, it's hospital access only like for hospital staff website that, um, behavioral health assistants and anyone else who's running a group can go on there and find ideas for groups that are act-based, DBT-based, um, body-centered based. So yeah, I was able to take those groups and five of them and publish them on that. So then like anyone else in other areas could use them, Mm -hmm. modify them, whatever they needed. Yeah. Yeah. And the point, what I really wanted to do with almost all the groups that I created, there were some that were very specific to the eating disorder population. Mm -hmm. Um, But for majority of them, I really wanted them to be focused on and be applicable to any mental health population. So after tinkering with them and shifting different concepts, I was, I felt like I was able to do that to the best of my abilities. So yeah, it was, it was such a good learning experience. Yeah, that's wicked. I, I like the fact that you're looking at ACT because I, I, it's something that we use, well, some of us used quite a lot in practice here, but it's I yeah. something that I don't feel like a lot of people don't know about it. Mm-mm, no, and when, you know, I was talking to my husband about, and even my mom too, both of those people in my life that are very close to me about what I'm doing and stuff like that. They're like, how does OT even fit with eating disorders and mental health? And I'm like, well, let me tell you. <laughs> let's run a group. Um, yeah, let's run a group. <laughs> join my group. Um, but one of the things, and towards the end, I did a presentation to all of the EDP staff um, and some of the higher ups for the hospital about what I did for my capstone and what I accomplished um, and also where I could see improvements. Um, And one of the things that I found a lot in research and also just with my own experience with me having an eating disorder and knowing what it's like to be in those patients' shoes Mm -hmm. um, is going shopping for clothes. And so having, I don't know, in australia if you guys have this show on netflix and if you haven't seen it and you have access to it you need to watch it because it's so good and it's based on true story it's called made and it's about this i think i've seen ads for it i think we have it but i haven't watched it okay okay well you need to watch it because it's really good um and i think it's a mini series so it's a quick Mm. watch um but this this mom 
goes to this shelter for women and children who are part of domestic violence. Um, and how I got this idea for this whole thing was from the show. From Netflix. And they have this. Do what? From Netflix. Cool. Yeah, from Netflix. Dude, all Taking so many. Inspiration from everywhere. I love it. So many, like I got an idea, an act idea for a group, which I'll touch on in a second, from the show New Girl. <laughs> That's awesome. I actually really like that show. I know, I know. <laughs> I'll touch on that in a second. Okay. Um, <laughs> but in Maid, when she goes to the shelter, they have this, it's so adorable, this closet that's community like donation based for clothes and it has clothes for women and children boys and girls um in all different sizes and i'm like that's genius why don't we do a community donation based closet and have clothes available for patients to practice shopping hmm. because seeing the size on clothes is a huge trigger and I mean, I could go down a rabbit hole of research that I'm not going to bore you with and people who are going <laughs> to listen to this podcast with, but I mean, the number, and also like, just from what I know, having experienced an eating disorder, seeing those numbers on the size of clothes, like, oh, I'm a small, but uh, now I need to be an extra small. I'm a size four or I'm yeah. a size two, but I need to be a zero. I, I love these pants so much that I'm going to make myself fit into those clothes when we're not made to fit into clothes. Clothes are made to fit us. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, that's it. I hadn't considered that as a, uh, I guess, part of an issue. But it makes oh, sense. Oh yeah, you're yeah. Putting a, you're putting a quantifiable number on something that really isn't designed to go mm -hmm. that way. Like you said, it's yeah. Clothes are designed to fit the person, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm so far on like one side of social media of body neutrality and mental health, and just very much focused on anti eating disorders and helping with that per population of people to where like to me it's second nature now but still being able to spread that word of like yeah you are made to fit into clothes the clothes are not made to fit you mm. um and another the one group that i was telling you about with that i got from new girl um how how familiar are you with new girl because you got to be a little familiar with it to know what uh... i'm talking about I'll, I'll give it a go. <laughs> okay. So there's this one episode and it's in the opening cold open of one of the episodes where Nick is blindfolded and he's reaching into a cup and he has to guess what is in the cup. They call the game Feely Cup. I think I do remember this. Yeah. And he's trying to guess, you know, what's in there. And he's like a carrot, a battery. I don't know. And his dad comes in, Nick's dad comes in, who is like very much absent from his life. And Mr. Miller is like tampon wrapped in duct tape and dipped in baking powder. And he gets it right. Like spot on gets it right. I'm like, that is actually really good for a metaphor for an act group. So what I did was I just always kept like random things in my desk, like um, a hair tie that had 
um, tape wrapped around it. I would take my house key and then I would take um, some yarn and put beads like on the yarn and wrap it around my key. So it, you know, messed with the the texture of that object. And then, oh, I did one more thing, but having people, you know, come up, close their eyes, feel it, and then guess what it is. Um, Some people would get it right. Some people would get it wrong. But besides that, it was a metaphor for, you know, we are so blind to some things and, you know, in order to be fully present and accept, you know, what's happening and all that act stuff Mm. tied in very well, like with that metaphor. And plus it was fun and funny. A lot of, a lot of the groups that I found at, um, at my site were, and just from talking to the BHAs too, they're like, these are so outdated. We want some new ideas because we feel like we're just doing the same old song and dance. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, here's some act groups that like BHAs can run. Mm. Now, polyvagal groups, I reserve the right for, you know, rehab staff to run those who have training in polyvagal theory because yeah. it's a very complex theory with a lot of intricacies that I'm, I'm very fascinated with um, and I want to learn, you know, more about. Yeah. So. yeah. No, that's. Uh... My mind just went blank. <laughs> it happens. It happens. It's okay. Um, that's really. I like the. Like, how long were the groups? They they weren't like not super long, intense things. Um, but you're yeah. also they were like an hour. Them, yeah, they were like an hour to forty five minutes. Yeah. Yeah, but you're also making them fun, which I think is one thing. And I, I've definitely been guilty of this in the past of thinking like, oh, you know, you can't make you know, too much, not too much fun, but like, I, I feel like I was, I have been guilty in the past of thinking of things when I'm working with adults as being too childish. Uh, mm. Whereas there's a way that you can do things that it's not childish, but it's still fun. It's still play and it's still creative and it yeah. still gets a message across. Um, but yeah, I feel like early in my career, I was constantly worried about like, oh, what are they going to think? What are the the clients or the patients going to think of me offering them this sort of weird, even if it's like arts and crafts or something, even if you're doing it, like I know nowadays, like it's, it's not uncommon, especially with things like Kawa to do it in an arts and crafts format. I'm like, well, what are they going to think of me doing this? And I'm like, yeah if it's fun, like there's, it's almost like an additional uh-huh. benefit to it in that you yeah. are better engaged in it. If things yeah. are fun, like I know I don't like doing things that aren't fun. So like, why mm-hmm. would anyone else be any different? And I'm, I think back to yeah. how I, I was when I was, especially on mental health wards, like on acute wards. Um, and I'm like, oh, I just feel like I could do so much more now. If I was, mm-hmm. if I knew now what I knew, if I knew then what I know now, to get that right yeah um but yeah i think that's that's wicked especially like it's not i feel like a lot of those groups traditionally maybe not so much on a specialty ward like an eating disorders ward but a lot of mm-hmm. those groups on a lot of mental health wards tend to just be like diversional 
um, to just. What do you mean by diversional? As in, it's not. There's no meaning or sort of lesson in it. It's just something to do. Oh yeah, 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 and that's kind of the vibe. And I mean, even when I was in treatment, like I got a lot out of DBT yep. because I had zero regulation skills. I didn't know how to even identify my emotions. Like kind of like what we talked about when we last talked, I knew happy and sad and anything in between that, like it was not allowed. So being able to learn how to one, identify my emotions and have a feelings wheel ready on hand and learning those DBT skills of how to regulate my body like that was really helpful for me yeah and you can only teach dbt so much to where it's like beating a dead horse so i really i mean and patients told me this too like we get dbt so much like i just love the fact that your groups are different Mm. and I felt like too, I was able to bring more of like a young modern twist to the groups that were going on because I mean, I was one of the much younger practitioners, not to, you know, shit on people who have been practicing in the field uh-huh. longer because we do need those practitioners. But for some of these younger kids, I mean, I was working with kids that were like 11 years old and they're like, I'm not going to listen to this old dirt bag. Like, no, <laughs> I want, I mean, not to put words in my patient's mouths, yeah, but yeah, like yeah. that kind of the vibe that I got. And like, if I was 11, 12 years old, I'd feel the same damn way. Yeah, of course. So it's, I think it was very refreshing. And I heard this from you know, the BHAs too, it was was very refreshing to get a younger perspective on a lot of things. I think that's one thing a lot of new grads don't, uh, it's not that they don't recognize it, but I feel like it's often taken for granted, um, Mm -hmm. is not, not necessarily the fact that they're young, but the fact that they've just come out of uni, which theoretically means that they're now armed with you know, the latest and greatest, I guess, from mm-hmm. the academic side of things. Yeah. The people that have been practicing, I'll put myself in that category now, there's people that have been practicing for a long time and may have learnt or gone through uni, you know, before a lot of these modern theories and things were commonplace. Like ACT, ACT's still relatively new. A lot of people, like, it didn't yeah. exist when I went through uni. I'd never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't even taught ACT. Like, I didn't know... Probably 90% of what I learned at Linden Oaks, I learned there because I didn't learn it in Mm. school because, I mean, I think I talked about this when I was last on here is I was taught by a psychologist. Mm. I was not taught by an OT for psychosocial. So I learned about the diagnoses, but that was it. Yeah. So, but I am going to be tidbit in here. I am going to be doing a guest lecture for my university um because my the new director of my program is like revamping literally everything and she is so phenomenal i love dr sowers she's so great and shout she's like yeah a shout out dr sowers <laughs> she's awesome and she's like we want to focus more on interventions not so much the diagnosis and all this stuff i'm like 
that's what it should be about. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's, I think, I think you did speak about it when last time you were here. Like, that's the way I mm-hmm. teach it. I'm like, that's, yeah. that's, I'm like, it's all well and good knowing what a diagnosis is, but that, that doesn't mm-hmm. help. <laughs> no. In the grand yeah. scheme of things, it doesn't help you be an OT. Yeah. So, yeah, the intervention side of it's good. And I like the way that you found, because I find one thing with, uh, some students, they have difficulty initially, especially in the early years in the course, essentially almost translating some sort of, I guess, sometimes quite complex um, ideas, like from a, you know, they learn things at uni or from journal articles, and translating that into something that general public you know, someone who's never had any contact with the medical field, they might find themselves on this ward or working with them and yeah. translating it into something that that person can actually digest and then use. And I feel mm-hmm. like those, the way you're describing these groups um, seems like a really awesome way of actually doing that. Like ACT is, uh, I think in the grants, for me anyway, I see, and again, I'm coming at this from an academic point of view, ACT is... A relatively easy concept to get your head around obviously mm-hmm. like everything takes a bit of practice to to get good at actually yeah. delivering it and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. but on the grand scheme of things it makes sense like it's yeah, it's, it's yeah. a relatively uh yeah. i wouldn't say common sense but it's it's a relatively easy concept to get your head around but yeah. still it, it's still a lot more complex again like i said i'm coming from a, a healthcare background with you know higher education like to me it makes sense there's still people yeah. that it's going to be super complex to and uh-huh. also it's it's harder when you're on the receiving end of things to actually start making sense because I mean, you're trying to make sense i'm making sense of it from an outsider's perspective the mm-hmm. person i'm delivering it to is trying to make sense of it in the context of their own life which makes yeah. a sort of added level of complexity so yeah. The group idea is really good in that it, it mm-hmm. one, one, like I said before, it makes it fun. But also I found that being able to externalize things for people who are trying to deal with them themselves is a really mm-hmm. good way to help them process them. And a lot of the interventions that I've used and that I teach now are taught with that concept in mind of okay if we can externalize this whether it's through a group or through an activity or through something that person can then almost like take it out of their head put it on the table process it out here and then it makes sense yeah Yeah. and kind of going off of the externalizing piece that you just said my absolute favorite group that i created and it was off of inspiration of when I was in treatment um, of externalizing your eating disorder voice. And when I was in treatment, um, my therapist at the time, I was having a really hard time dealing with a lot of the trauma that had gone on um, in high school for me Mm -hmm. and coping with that and working through a lot of the emotional stuff. What my therapist suggested to me was to either print off a picture or draw what your what they look like yeah what what they look like what your eating disorder voice would look like what your quote-unquote abuser i mean for 
my patients of what I would say to them, either your abuser or a parent or something like that, what that looks like for you. And if you can't come up with a person in your mind, it doesn't even have to be someone who is living on this earth. Mm. It could be a thing. Mm. It could be an object. And I had a patient who, um, they drew a needle and every time they thought of their eating disorder voice, their, that needle was just poking at them. And it was so annoying. And I'm like, that's a really good way to put it. And this patient, I mean, I love doing this group and I tried to, you know, mix it up of like who got to experience that group. Um, that patient had the privilege of experiencing that group, I think three or four times, (laughs) but every time, every time that patient experienced that group, their image of the needle looked a little bit different. And it was just, it was cool to see that progression. And, you know, I asked that patient, I was like, is this okay that, you know, we're doing this again? Like, I'm sorry, you keep experiencing this group. I love doing it. And I love for different people to experience it. And the patient was like, nah, I love this group. Like, this is <laughs> awesome. Every time we do this, I, I get a little bit of a different perspective and I'm like, okay, cool. So that made me feel a little less anxious about that specific patient and it being like on repeat, but I mean, it was, it was really cool. I mean, and I brought a pillow with me too. And I like, I held it up, I taped it to the pillow and I'm like, you do or say whatever you need to do or say to your eating disorder voice. I have a pillow here and I taped it here. So in case you want to punch it, if you want to, whatever you want to do, like, that's why I have this pillow. Uh, they did not. Okay. <laughs> um, my patients did not. But I mean, they were like, I don't want to hurt you. I'm like, dude, that's why I brought a pillow. Yeah. Like, it's fine. You're hurting, so, you're hurting the yeah, you're not hurting me. You're hurting <laughs> your eating disorder voice. And you're telling them basically to F off. Um, so that was really fun. And then like checking in with their body and where they landed on the polyvagal ladder. Yep. That was kind of the main point of that group was you know, before how, where, where did you land on the polyvagal ladder? Was that, did it seem super scary to externalize it? How did you feel during it? What emotions came up? Where do you land? How do you feel after? And like constantly checking in and with the polyvagal stuff too, it wasn't even to start to shift what their ladder looks like. It was just to bring awareness to that because and I know that there's a lot of controversy about the polyvagal theory and Stephen Portis and if like, it's actually real, but I believe that it is. So I'm going to teach these patients what I believe to be true, especially for eating disorders. Mm. Um, Cause they do become so disconnected with their bodies and emotions and it's good to educate about that. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. I think the uh, self-awareness is something I've spoken about a lot on here and Again, like it is. Have those, like, <laughs> my students, where they're probably sick of hearing me say it as well. But I, I think it's it's a hard skill to learn, but it's like yeah. probably one of the most important skills you're ever gonna learn. So, oh yeah, put the yeah. effort in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you were saying something earlier, and I forget 
Oh, what it was, but I was listening to one of the most recent uh, roundtables that you guys did about should every, every practitioner be a, a, a clinical yeah. instructor. Yeah. Oh, it was um, about like new grads and uh, a younger perspective, more modern perspective. Yep. And as I was listening, I was listening to this episode, I think while I was packing to come up to Wisconsin and like everything that you were saying, I'm like, yes, like not. And I'm about halfway through it. Cause it was a really long episode. Um, I mean, really not. Long. Yeah. Huh? They're all really long. I know they are all really long. <laughs> like bad. I need to go, I need to do like a long walk. Yeah. Cause my long walks are like long. So that's perfect time for those podcasts. Yep. Yeah. And I'm always so behind it's because they're long i'm always so behind on yours um no Um, it's all right um but they're just so rich in information all of yours are so i'm like okay i have to like actually take time where i'm paying attention no i do um but i mean (laughs) um but i mean yeah with with younger practitioners like transferring patient this is so off topic transferring this is like what came to my mind of like transferring patients I was talking to my husband about this too like it's so hard when you're in school to transfer an able-bodied person who's pretending like they've had a stroke to transfer them like especially if you don't know how a stroke presents I mean yeah I've never, until I went into acute care for my first field work, I had never met anyone who had ever had a stroke. Yep. So it's like, how do you expect me to be able to mock that so that we're getting the best? Also, when we have never had field work once. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the the big difficulties with just mm-hmm. healthcare education in general is, you know, simulation can only go so far. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, especially with the f- physical limitations, mm-hmm. if the person hasn't got one or they have never experienced one, or like you said, you've never even met anyone who say had a, had a stroke or had whatever other condition they're trying to learn about. It, yeah. The simulation's not going to help a huge amount. I'll, yeah. I'll, I try and avoid them if I can. Um, yeah. But again, I think I'm lucky in a way because with mental health, a lot of the techniques that I'm teaching, like mm-hmm. you can do them with anyone. Like they don't have yeah. to like have a formal diagnosis or have a condition mm-hmm. in order to um, do the techniques that, yeah. that, I, that I teach people. So um, I, I can get away with not, simulating a lot of things which is is good Mm -hmm. for me but yeah i don't know the the physical side of things i think would be yeah a lot more difficult Mm -hmm. um can i share my screen with you because i want to show you some of the things that i made i don't know if you can can you does it give you that option i don't how do i do this sometimes the host has to allow it okay yeah here we go oh i haven't done anything yet yeah So this was one of the things that I created because I, um, tickets. yeah, so I was kept going, um, you know, through the internet and now I need to find the one that I actually really like. 
um, I kept going through the internet trying to find different polyvagal ladder. This is the one that I wanted. Different polyvagal ladder um, images to show my patients. And I didn't really like any of them. Um, so I just decided to make my own. And based on a, a few different sources that I found, um, but there are different like progressions um, that I made there. I have like 11 or 12 different yeah. images that I've like messed around with. Um, but yeah, like I would show this image to my patients of, you know, this is the typical progression of how a nervous system, you know, goes from safe and social, then it progresses to the fight or flight. And then if your body cannot fight against or run from the thing that is the threat, the perceived threat that is presented to you, then it goes to the freeze shutdown. Yeah. So for people <laughs> listening, it's like three different categories, yeah. the safe and social fight or flight and the freeze or shutdown. And then within each one is uh, the list of emotions, but also the list of affect and behaviors on each one. Mm -hmm. So you're progressing through them from wherever, mm -hmm. wherever their baseline is, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I would present that one up on like the big screen that we had mm -hmm. or, um, oh, which one is that? Or I would present this one. And what I found very interesting and also, I wasn't surprised that most people resonated with this image um, because when you're in your eating disorder or mental illness, your body perceives everything as so much of a threat yep. most of the time that it's something that you can't fight or run from. And so it just completely immediately shuts down and you go into that dissociative state. Yeah. So okay. that fight or flight just being flipped with the freeze and shut down. Yeah. So they hit the freeze or shut down before um, the fight mm -hmm. or flight as opposed to the, yeah. the last one we were looking at, which was the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, I made a video too, um, like about all of this and about like the window of tolerance, which is very much in the weeds of all this. So, um, like for, I'm just for gonna, the clients, the video. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I would briefly touch on the window of tolerance and explain what that is that you can healthily experience different emote that you can experience different emotions such as anger or sadness and cope with them in a healthy way. Yep. And when we're in our mental illness or eating disorder our window of tolerance is a lot more small yeah. because we have not learned and we do not have that capacity to experience all those emotions. No. So we're constantly in an up and down. So, hmm. and patients were like mind blown. And I'm <sighs> like, this is the type of shit we need to be teaching our patients because it resonates with them with these different body experiences. We all have a body. We all have a nervous system. Our nervous system all responds in some sort of way. We just need to figure that out. I mean, that's, so that's the it, sort of stuff I think everyone needs to learn. Yeah, Not even just the yeah. Class. I think even most students could could relate yeah. to that in some. Like everyone can relate to the fact that if you're having a shit day, like you're 
tolerances uh, are a lot mm-hmm. lower than like stuff that would normally just you wouldn't even bother with will really set yeah. you off for things. And mm-hmm. obviously that's a, a, a much more minor example, but you, you then take that and extrapolate it out to the people you work with. If you're working with people who have experienced trauma, are currently acutely unwell, like any sort of these more extreme stresses, the same theory applies. It's just mm-hmm. on a bigger scale. Either that yeah. tolerance is much, much smaller. And then, mm-hmm. like you said, everything is triggering something. Or, yeah, you know, and, and most people don't know that that's what's happening. Like you said, you, your clients yeah. were like in shock, like, oh my God, that's how that works, kind of thing. Yeah. But that's like, that's 101 kind of. Mm-hmm. stress management or whatever you want to call it yeah. like that's that's pretty mm-hmm. basic level i think everyone should know oh yeah and yeah like again it's one of those concepts where you explain it or you point it out and everyone's like oh oh yeah i can relate yeah to like that. that makes sense yeah mm-hmm. yeah and i mean i very much struggled with dissociation a lot um, I think, you know, last time I came on here, I think I told you that like for majority of my childhood and adolescence, like I don't remember a lot of it because majority of the time I was dis- dissociating. Yeah. So I remember bits and pieces, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I don't remember a whole lot. Um, so learning about the polyvagal theory from my therapist and then being able to apply that in my life, I'm like, okay, we, like, a lot of other people need to know this because now it's, I feel like I can put it in a way that is comprehensible for patients, I mean, kids who are 11, 12 years old. And these 11 and 12-year-olds that I would have in my groups, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I would make sure, too, like, if you guys have questions, like, please ask me. If you don't fully understand something, please ask me because, in order for you guys to be able to fully participate in these groups and to get something out of it, I want to make sure that you guys understand what is going on. Mm. And if they didn't understand something, I would try and frame it in a different way, um, which was also really good challenging myself as like a group facilitator of how to answer those questions, reframe it, and then also asking probing questions too, because that was the hardest part. Yeah. I love I love interview techniques. This is my jam. So I like when, I know, I like when yeah. people are like learning about it or practicing different, <laughs> different skills. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And it, well, one thing that you'll find very interesting too is I got to work with patients who have avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. Okay. Which is it recently fell under the spectrum of eating disorders Yep. very recently within DSM-5. Um, it was always like a disorder, but it wasn't really categorized anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's very much more sensory based. And so I'm also such a nerd for sensory stuff. <laughs> um, and so I was able to bring in a lot of these different 
just very simple tools. Like I always carry lavender essential oil with me, like at all times, just for myself. Cause to me, that's super soothing. That sound like uh, Mary Poppins. You just got this bag full of things that you carry around all the time. Oh dude, my purse is like, <laughs> my purse is maybe like an 11 by five, but I fit so much shit in there. I believe it. Yeah. Um, and I always carry lavender oil on me. Um, I would also bring um, this big exercise ball that I would like roll over top of clients if they were very much sensory seeking and they liked that deep pressure. Um, unfortunately, we didn't have like weighted blankets or weighted lap pads okay. at outpatient, but we had weighted blankets in the inpatient unit. Um, but I mean, throughout my time there, like, census would get so low that they would discharge all of the eating disorder patients and they would shut down EDP because we wouldn't have any patients yeah. or they would take patients from other units and move them to EDP because we didn't have any foreseeable admissions. So uh, I spent a lot of my time in outpatient in the PHP IOP setting, um, which I absolutely loved the staff patients and just the facility in and of itself was so nice yeah that's, so. that's i mean that's one of the uh one of the things that people will come up against in working with any big mm -hmm. health system is that sort of bureaucratic decision making but yeah i did get to go into other units um one of them was our our detox unit um so people are coming off of like various different substances, not just like alcohol. Yep. Um, and I would run some of my act groups with them. Um, I, I think I tried a polyvagal group with them and I think they, it landed with most, most participants um, of the people who decided to participate. So yeah, with the detox unit, it was hard to, I mean, because when you're detoxing, you need like three days just to come down to earth. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's uh, some groups. Uh, I've always sort of thought this. There's, there's some times in in a person's recovery where like mm -hmm. certain groups or certain topics probably aren't targeted best at that time. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's not that they won't get anything out of it at all, but mm -hmm. you know, it might be better suited to, you know, two or three days after their admission or, you know, just before yeah. they're gonna go home. Or some things are better yeah. better targeted at outpatient than inpatient and, mm -hmm. and knowing what's what is is a skill in itself. Yeah. Yeah, but I was able to write up um a protocol, a treatment protocol for these patients who came in with ARFID because with patients who have ARFID, it's very different how you approach, like, sure, DBT can land with them, but at the same time, like, it's so sensory-based that, like, you need that exposure therapy. And so I really went back to PEDS, and I went through the sensory, like, feeding progression of how 
you know, we introduce foods to kids and like, it's okay if the food is just like sitting there and we smell it and then we touch it, we play with it and know that like, it's okay and it's safe. Um, And I mean, it was so cool to see the progression of my first ARFID patient because I went into this and they were like, hey, can you do something with them? Because like this ARFID patient is super tricky and um, I think it'd be good for you to, you know, try and do an individual with him. I'm like, okay. We don't know what to do. (laughs) I'm like, I'll see what I can do. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I really like after that, I really did like my first session with this patient. I did a super deep dive on ARFID because I mean, I didn't learn. I mean, I knew what ARFID was just from putting myself in this space. But I knew what the definition of the diagnosis was. That was it. And so, like, I didn't know anything else. I'm like, all right, like, I need to figure something out. And then I'm like, well, why not go back to, like, there's no, the exposure therapy is on here, like, for all this research, but how am I going to do that? And I'm like, well, what about the feeding progression with kids? And it was super cool to see, like, my mind work through that as, like, almost an OT. I'm like, wow. That's almost pretty cool. OT. This is almost I, an OT. I was. I was almost an I was still a student. So you're working as an OT. If you're doing individuals, you're working yeah. as an OT. Okay. <laughs> it was it was just really cool to see that progression in my mind go. And then by the time that patient was done at Linden Oaks, like one of their biggest aversive foods was cheese. By the time this patient left, I definitely don't have that aversion. Oh, me either. <laughs> uh, absolutely I love probably, cheese. I could probably do with some aversion. <laughs> <laughs> One of his aversions was cheese. By the time he left, there was cheese on like a meal that he was eating, and he like, okay, not a big deal. Like ate the meal with the cheese on it. Didn't pick any of it off. I'm like. My work here is done. <laughs> Thank you. You may now discharge. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, with the last ARFID patient that I have had, um, I did not get to see their progression all the way through. Um, but, I mean, they still were making very good progress to where it's it's not that I want to get you to like this food. Yeah, yeah. That's not point of this it's so that it becomes less aversive to where you can tolerate it if you have to yeah yeah yeah. so and very much dictated at you know their pace also based off of their sensory profile that i would administer so it was really cool to see that progression it's it's always fascinated me obviously within a mental health space how like how we learn things now, like I say now, like as adults compared to like yeah. kids, it's pretty similar. Like there's mm-hmm. not that much difference. Like yeah. I remember working with a guy, and I'm sure I've probably spoken about him before on the podcast, but working with a guy who I think at the time when I was working with him, he was about 24, um, but he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia at 15 or 16. 
and he'd been in the system since then and bounced around case managers and all of that but one thing that's fairly well documented within schizophrenia literature is the fact that sort of around diagnosis it kind of like stunts development for a bit so everyone had been working with him as this 24 year old kid and i'm like well what if we work with him as a 16 year old because that's when he was diagnosed and now all of a sudden a lot of his even just thinking about it like that a lot of his behaviors made sense because i'm like that's what a 16 year old kid would be doing like he wanted to you know he, he didn't have a lot of regard for finances and money and managing stuff he just wanted to play games and hang with his friends and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff and everyone was like you're 24 you should be getting a job yeah. and doing all this sort of stuff and i'm like well for the period between 16 and 24 he's been in and out of hospital he's been tied in with this very adult system and he hasn't had the opportunities to develop a lot of those skills where most mm-hmm. of us would get between 16 and 24 of finishing school going to uni or TAFE or something or getting a job he hasn't developed any of those because he hasn't had the opportunity so that's mm-hmm. why he's kind of still operating at a I'm 16 level so yeah. us trying to push this 24-year-old agenda on what is essentially the behaviors of a 16-year-old kid, and then we yeah. wonder why we're not getting anywhere. I'm like, well, if we take him back yeah. to you and start actively giving him the opportunities that most of us would get at 16, like, mm-hmm. you know, we might actually get somewhere. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of those developmental things that don't get taken into account or like that's how we learn is the same way that we would learn you know through that sort of natural developmental progression that i think people need to be thinking about when they're working with anyone that's had any kind of delay or interruption uh to life because like development doesn't stop at five or whatever like yeah i'm probably still developing Probably bad habits now, but still developing something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I that very much hits home because I mean, like like I've said before, with the emotional development aspect, like for myself, when I was dissociating through the ages of probably about twelve to probably twenty two maybe even a little bit before that, when I met my husband, um, in college, like I, my emotional development was very much stunted. Yeah. And so by the time I started to get better and choose to recover, I had a lot of catch up to play. I mean, now I feel, I feel like I'm in a good enough place to where I've actually put a pause on therapy and like, I don't feel like I need to go to therapy anymore. And my therapist and I like came to that decision between the two of us, which is super cool to like be in this space of like, wow, I don't feel like I need to go to therapy anymore, but also like, holy shit, I don't need to go to therapy (laughs) anymore. Like, am I going to be okay? (laughs) But I mean, still like it's, yeah, I, I can't, I mean, being, being an OT, like we help people do those ADLs, but like being myself now, like almost buying a house and graduating and all this stuff, like I can't imagine like 
all those adulting type of things that that, that kid is like yeah. stunted at age 16. Well, that's the other thing. Like if if yeah. you hadn't have gone to therapy and hadn't have, mm-hmm. I guess, got out of the grips of your eating disorder, like could you imagine yeah. doing the things that you're doing now while still going through that? Oh, no. I would not have been able to do OT school like I I really don't I really don't I don't think that my husband and I's relationship like would be in as wonderful of a place as it is now I mean he helped me get out of my eating disorder and I mean if I if I hadn't chose to recover like we might not be together because I would have chosen that over him I I don't know I mean there's so many what ifs that I've gone through all of it but I mean yeah, also anxiety coming at you with that. All the what ifs. <laughs> That's all right. I've been there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, those are like the main things. And I did my uh, dissemination on August 9th, and I found out on Friday that I passed my boards. So, woo. it's all coming up, Millhouse. I know. Yeah. So what's next? Um, well, my husband and I are finally get to go on our honeymoon. We're so excited. <laughs> We're going to Switzerland and Italy. Oh, wow. I know. I've always wanted to go to Switzerland. I've never been to Europe, period. So I'm super excited for that one. Um, we get to go to Switzerland, which I've always wanted to go to Switzerland. If I could have chosen, we would have eloped a long time ago in and eloped in Switzerland. Yeah. <laughs> Why Switzerland? Um, it's just so pristine and beautiful, untouched land. Yep. And the hiking there is going to be awesome. To be fair, complete side note, but there's a, a photographer, an Australian photographer I, I follow online, yeah. and he just did a job in Switzerland, I think, for like some mm-hmm. tourism mob in Switzerland. I just really? followed along. He was there for like three weeks just doing that hiking taking photos and i'm like yeah. this is insane like it looks like a po- every photo he took even just the behind the scenes videos with his phone looked yeah. like a postcard or some kind of like yeah. everything looked like the sound of music <laughs> everything, everything's green yeah everyone's happy wait, <laughs> wait what's this what's this guy's handle because now i want to follow him uh it is scott something uh sean scott photography i don't know if he's posted any of the switzerland pics on his page yet but yeah i was following his story hey that's that's all right he still has some dope pictures there's a few there from june if you scroll down there's like mountains and there's a cow and stuff there's a cow yeah if you scroll down there's a there's a photo of a cow and around it is all the switzerland pictures Sean Scott photography. Oh my god! Yeah, see, that's so cute. I love cows. Okay. I love cows. That's random. Well, there you go. No, I do. They're so cute. I love cows. Oh, Dude, love I grew up in We've got a lot of them. I grew up in Kentucky, so there's a lot of cows around where I grew up. Fair enough. And there, I grew up with a llama farm in my neighborhood. A llama farm. Yeah, they broke out twice. <laughs> Dude, no, I'm not kidding you. When I was like eight years old, they broke out once. 
and the city was like, okay, y'all, like you got to reel this in, like can't be having these llamas escaping. Oh, there were a lot. There were like 10. It was like a legit farm. Roaming the streets. No, they were. I had one standing in my driveway. I was coming up the cul-de-sac from one of my friend's houses after playing for the night. My dad had this like whistle that he would do to like get me and my brother to come home for dinner. (laughs) And I know I'm not kidding. He'd be like, (laughs) I can't whistle, but I came up the hill and there's a llama sitting in my driveway and I'm like, how am I going to get the house? (laughs) Just pet it. It'll be fine. They're cute. Yeah, yeah. And then the second time they broke out, they're like, all right, dude, you got to leave. Like, these llamas are getting out of control. <laughs> out of control llamas. That sounds like a comedy yeah. skit. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're going on our honeymoon uh, to Switzerland and Italy for two weeks. And I'm so excited. And then in mid-September, I start my first OT job in pediatrics and outpatient peds. Exciting. Yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping to um, take what I've learned about polyvagal theory and try and apply that to kids. Um, Because there's this book series that I want to get. It's called A Little Spot of Emotion. It's so adorable. I'm going to pull it up because I love showing people. A Little Spot of Emotion. It's so cute. Is this internet going to work? Yes, it is. Okay. Here we go. So it's this book set that you can get. A little spot of emotion. Children. And it has little plush toys. Look at that. Okay. So it's like a little, what is that? Eight little emotes. I'm assuming each one is an emotion. They kind of look like the things of Inside Out. Yeah, yeah. And the book comes with the book. With a little spot of feelings, yep. So I'm assuming it would be something around them externalizing their uh, emotions and exploring them. Yeah, and so then she has Diane Albert is a genius. She has all these little spots, and this is our scribble spot friend. Because he doesn't know how he's feeling and he's tangled all in his emotions and he doesn't know how. All of multicolored yarn. Yeah. Well, he's a scribble spot. He's a scribble spot. And um, then she has like different books talking about like a little spot of anger and a little spot of happiness and love and peaceful, confidence, anxiety, sadness, scribble spot. It really is like inside out. It's so cute. I'm obsessed with it. So with my first paycheck, I'm going to be buying a lot of her books. Um, but also what I want to do is Does the workplace not the... buy your resources? No, they do. I just want my own set. Uh, okay. Um, because they're very small, delicate little plush toys. Yeah. So I want to make sure that like they're taken Protective. care of. Yes. Well, I mean, especially with this, because, like, it's so cute, and, like, kids could easily just tear the feet off, and I'm like, I mean, I can sew, but I don't want to have to try and sew that back on. So, but what I want to do with polyvagal stuff is create kind of a book series like Diane Albert did, 
um, with a little spot of feelings and do that for polyvagal theory of like different characters to help externalize like those body feelings and sensations and emotions and what all that means. I feel like uh, I, I get a sense there's a career in resource development coming up. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like I would absolutely. <laughs> it seems to be something you're very passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, as a student, like, and especially going to a very small grad program in university, like there was only so much in our budget that we could afford to purchase. And under the regime of my old program director, it was very much biomechanical based for my program. So I don't know, just making resources like more available and cost friendly because a lot of them are not. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I've done a lot of uh, different things over the years that were targeted at sharing free resources or developing free resources or that kind of thing because a lot of resources especially when i graduated it's a little bit better nowadays but when i graduated there was actually nothing that you couldn't you could get to just use and everybody wanted to charge a fortune for every little pdf document that they developed and i'm like dude yeah. this is like i got this off google um i guess really i don't know how you can justify yeah selling this. yeah but yeah. yeah, and like the YouTube video that I made about explaining the polyvagal theory, I mean, it's in very simplistic terms where like if you Google Carissa Galano, like it's the one of the first things that will pop up. Um, I'll add the link in the show notes for people. Yeah, yeah, please do. Because I mean, it's out there. And if people hear this and are super interested in learning about polyvagal theory, I mean, it's out there for a reason to help educate people. And the posts that I've been doing for the past few couple weeks about like, what is the polyvagal theory? Part one, two, three, that whole series of posts is based off of that video of, so it's on a, another platform for people to read if they don't feel like watching a 10 minute video. Yep. Sweet. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Exciting. So, like, with yeah. your with your uh, deliverable, like, who signs off on that? Like, is it the uni or is it your supervisors? Like, who's there saying, "Yep, this is awesome." Yeah, it's it's both. Um, I had an expert mentor, um, the OT on site at Linden Oaks. His name is Jim, and then my faculty mentor person. Um, who was just like a faculty member and professor at my university. Um, and so I had biweekly meetings with both of them um, to just kind of check in on progress, where I was at, what I needed help with, what I felt like I was struggling with. And also in that, I mean, Jim was Jim's desk and my desk were like right next to each other. Yeah. So it's like, it's not like he was not on site and didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I, we very much talked like, multiple times a day about different things I was doing um, to help with creating the resources. So, and I also, um, I did a continuing education course during all of this of making all the resources that I did 
um, called Embodied Recovery. And for any, um, it's it's weird to say this because I'm just talking to you, but I know this is going to be published out in the interwebs. Yeah. Um, it's for people who listen to this. It's a course that is based in trauma informed care about eating disorders and how practitioners can help to treat eating disorders. And I asked um, one of the instructors, I'm like, has an OT ever taken this course before? Like, am I out of line here with taking this? Like, I just want to make sure that this is okay that I'm coming in one as a student and two as an OT who's not typically in this space. She's like, Oh my gosh, yes. We've had so many OTs take our course and their perspective of being an OT really helps with these mental health practitioners. Like there were some dietitians there. There were a lot of therapists, some social workers, like they come in with a certain mindset and it helps to have a different mindset from an OT to help kind of shift things a little bit. Yep. So for any, for any practitioner who might decide to go into the eating disorder space, um, it's a very good resource that I highly recommend. And there were people from um, not just the United States in that course too. So it was all online. That's wicked. So yeah. with, with regards to say the deliverables, does that, uh, solely exists now in the union at that hospital or is it something that you're going to be able to take or use in the future or mm-hmm. how does that side of things work? Yeah, so um, they are mine because I created them. So I do have, you know, ownership. of. I will always have ownership of them. Um, but the hospital also has everything that I created because um, that was kind of part of, you know, the deal yeah. of, hi, Come, come take me. I'm a student and I want to do things for you. I will give you things. I will give you things if you let me be on your site. I mean, it was, it, it was a long process to try and get my site. Um, and Linden Oaks was like my last ditch effort before I was going to have to completely change my projects. Yeah. Like if Linden Oaks did not have me at their hospital, I would not have been able to do all of the awesome work that and learn all the awesome things that I did. And I can't tell you how many times, like I thanked everyone and just told them like, y'all were my last ditch effort. Like you guys, I've truly have found my passion in OT is working in not only mental health, but with patients who have eating disorders, I truly have found my passion. And I hope that I get to go back to Linden Oaks soon Yep. But yeah, I mean, the Senate Senate introduced um, a bill that is going to make OT care and mental health for Medicare and Medicaid more accessible. Finally. So they just, I, I freaking know because we wouldn't accept not, e- not even to the hospital. Would we accept patients who had Medicare and Medicaid? We wouldn't. And those are the patients who need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It made me so angry. I, yeah. So angry. I've voiced my confusion over your healthcare system many times. Dude, I'm going into health. I'm in healthcare in this in this country <laughs> and in this system. And there are some days where I still don't understand. 
I mean, don't get me started on taxes. Oh, I don't even understand how that works here, let alone anywhere else. I know. Yeah. I was filling out my W-4 form for like getting hired and they just changed like a lot of the things about like hiring onboarding forms and stuff. And I'm like, what does it mean to be jointly filing or single and then married and filing separately? What? I don't know all the things. Yeah, I feel like ours. I don't know. I don't know how that works. I get someone else to do. I don't. I don't either. So it's just so confusing. I'd rather give someone Um, else money to sort that out for me. (laughs) Yeah, it's too hard. I don't. I guarantee I'd do something wrong. Well, we chose to go into healthcare for a reason because we're not good at math. That's (laughs) that's so unbelievably true. (laughs) Also, why I don't think. I don't, that's why also I don't think I will ever do research because then math is involved with that. No, then you just look at like qualitative research. There's less math. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I kind of did a little bit of that because I gathered patient data. I did like these surveys, client experience of therapy. Yep. Um, Just like, yeah, just to see like, okay, are these patients getting anything out of this? Because if they're not like I need to know so that I can shift what I'm doing but I mean so what's, I got what a lot of really was it looking at like what were you asking um yeah it was looking at um I can tell you one moment actually um where is it that always intrigues me the the KPIs that people use or yeah or in some instances ignore yeah but uh so it was the rating of the therapist like how i did as a therapist running the group how they felt like you know was i empathetic was i did i connect with you in some way um their experience of the session what the session focused on um the approach that i used to convey the message and then the overall rating of the session okay So I then took all of that, like every time I would get a stack of papers back, I would take it, put it in in an Excel doc to calculate like and add up all the numbers. Um, Because I mean, shit, I probably did like over 200 surveys, like and collected all that data um, to where by the end I had percentages, like X percent of patients rated the therapist as as a completely or 10 out of 10 or whatever. Um, And then kind of going down that list of like showing this is how many people rated her as a 10, nine, eight and below or completely. So yeah. And it was, it was really cool then to see like, okay, if I did score low and like I would I mean, patients weren't required to put their name on it. If they wanted to, they could. Yeah. Um, I actually kind of liked it when they did so that if they did score me a little bit lower, I'd be like, okay, how can I help these sessions resonate with you? Because one, you're paying to be here. Yeah. And it's my job. It's your ther- even though I'm not getting paid. Yeah, yeah. It's my job to make sure that you're getting the most out of therapy because I want to help you. Yep. And it... I, I had a conversation with a patient and he's like, 
wow, like that really made a difference in my experience because a lot of the times, like you're just seen as a number. Yeah. Well, they actually and are. Like, <laughs> By the yeah, system, you're they just actually seen, are a number. Yeah, you're just seen as a number. And it's like, nah, dude, you're a human being with emotions and you're going through shit. Like, I want to make sure that you're getting the most out of this. So, yeah. Yeah, I think those those quality improvement uh, mm-hmm. cycles uh, are important, especially if you're developing new resources. Being yeah, able to yeah. essentially, I guess, almost pilot them and then refine them and improve them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, the other thing with a lot of resources that have been around for a while is that process sometimes just stops. So that you'll have resources, like you said, that the, the staff were talking about having like before you got there, like they've had resources, they've been there forever, but when was the last time anyone like actually looked at them and mm-hmm. updated yeah, them? Yeah, and I found a binder in a cabinet somewhere <laughs> and I started like looking through some stuff and I'm like, like, a this, like this looks like it's from like the 90s. Like, come on, people. This is the 21st century. You're lucky the... Lucky, a little bit. Lucky it was just the 90s. I think I've found some older ones at some point. Oh, probably. Yeah. So. Back in the day. <laughs> Good stuff. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, congratulations on everything. Thank you. So much going on since we last spoke. I know. Yeah. Married. Finished Married. Uh-huh. Got past your boards. About to go to Switzerland. Like, it's all happening. I know, yeah. Kicking them life goals. Yeah, hopefully we're going to have a house by the end of the year, so... House. Fingers crossed, yeah. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly, if you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied. Okay, I've been telling my husband I want to go to Australia so bad. He's like... But it's a 24-hour flight or some crazy shit like that. I'm like, yeah, I you know. Forget about but that once you get here. I know. And I'm like, but there are so many people that I follow on social media. And now I've met one of them that I'm just like, I just want to go and probably, just experience them in person. Probably get here and just be severely disappointed.